So, Steve, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, Slave as an organization went through a lot of personnel changes in a relatively short period of time. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, why maybe there was so much change and what was going on, you know, within the group and, and, and around the group from, you know, the late 70s to, you know, I guess the very early 80s? Well, it's unfortunate, but a lot of groups from that era and before, there were always money issues, management issues, people not getting paid what they should. Um, slave was no different. Uh, unfortunately, after the first album, there were people at it, then people, you know, were leaving, you know. It seemed though, as people were being at it, it kept growing and getting better and getting stronger. So for a while, it appeared that that wasn't such a bad thing. But over time, even the people that were at it, they started to leave. And, and it's because of what I said, you know, the management, monies, you know, you're having hot records, not just hit records, but important hit records that have stood this test of time. Now, when you look back and see still a, a respect and appreciate a lot of the music that was done from, from Slave, um, but we weren't getting the monies we should have gotten. We wasn't getting uh, the things that make you feel uh, like your work has been appreciated in a way that you can continue to grow, to go to the next level as an artist. When you're always fighting starter kit money and you're no longer at starter kit uh, situations, you're now our proven and tested artist with hits behind you and you're still getting starter kit money, uh, what happens, it's easy to start to implode. And it's hard to know your worth when you don't get the money that will um, sustain your gift. Like I would tell my wife who went to college and she got you know paid for the, the education and the quality of work that she did every week. And she understood her worth based on just in a working environment. She knew, you know, based on the time I put in the education, I get this money and I feel comfortable and good about what I've done based on the time I put in. But put yourself in a musician where it's not that at all. You've put the time in, you've got the education, you've done these things and all of a sudden the monies don't reflect that. So you can start becoming inward on yourself and then a group can start to implode on itself behind that. And that's the primary reason I believe we had problems of people coming and going enslaved and eventually catching up to the group with that happening. It's a shame when, you know, exterior things have such a profound impact on artistic uh, creations like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about those first few albums that you were with the band, uh, the concept, Just a Touch of Love, and the amazing uh, Stone Jam, which is my personal favorite, um, and included uh, the hit Watching You. You know, talk to me, Steve, about how those projects came together, what the creative process was like for the band in terms of composing arrangements. You know, were you guys buried in, in, in the studio rehearsal a lot? Um, and who are some of the, like, other maybe key producers or contributors? 
Well, first of all, I'd like to say we loved playing together. We really did. The blend that we had was special. We understood it was special. E.B. Washington, I have to give a lot of credit. We call him the fearless leader. He um, was the nephew of Pee Wee of the Ohio Players. And that's what got him and brought him to Dayton from East Orange, New Jersey. Um, so Stevie Washington had, I call him like the forerunner to Prince. He was very studio savvy and um, he was into the sound. He was into our studio sound and he was into our sound live. Um, and so we worked really hard on getting a unique sound. Mark Adams, for instance, his bass sound, it's his fingers for sure. But a lot of it is how Stevie Washington recorded him and set up his equipment to bring the best out of what he was doing sonically so you could hear it. And Mark Adams, to me, is one of the most powerful recorded bassists in R&B history. The sound, just the sound coming over the radio, the sound jumping off the records. Part of that has to do with uh, Stevie Washington. So we loved playing together. Stevie Washington understood the studio. And, um, and I guess when you look at it, when you're inspired by each other, ideas just come, 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 come. And so we all would make a great concoction. Danny Webster, who had that funky guitar style and had great picking parts. Now, I don't think Danny gets enough credit for the picking parts. That picking part that he did on Just a Touch of Love is just, it's just classic. It's, it's just classic. Um, and some of the other picking parts that he'd done um, throughout our, our, our musical time together, he was such a great contributor. Of course, Mark Adams with his amazing bass and the bass lines, Stevie Washington, Floyd Miller was doing a lot of the horn arrangements. Um, and so those are the primary cats, you know, Mark Hicks as well. They call me Drat, his solos. Um, so we had a great concoction and Stevie Wonder, of oh, Stevie Wonder, I'll call him Stevie, he was a wonder as well, Stevie Washington. Understood how to make it all work and pull it together to make a cohesive sound that everything complemented the other. So yeah, Stevie Washington, you know, he deserves a lot of credit and especially what he was 18, 19, 20. You know, 20, 21, like that as, as time went on, because he started, he was 16 when Slide came out as well. Uh, so yeah, man, um, those are the primary people that I would say. And then, you know, I came in there and then Starlena Young came into the group from Jersey. And so did uh, Kurt Jones. So um, yeah, man, it's, ooh, man, Slave, I thought at one time we had one of the most powerful lineups in music period, regardless of the genre. There was a lot of heavy hitters in Slave um, around Stone Jam is a good example of when we were all at full blast together. That's an amazing record. Um, you mentioned some of the key players and I wanted to uh, ask you, I had written down specifically because they're the ones that always stood out most to me and that's you know Mark Adams, um, Mark Hicks, and uh, Steve Washington, <clears throat> Adams on bass, uh, Drac Hicks on guitar, and 
uh, Washington's primary instrument, as far as I know, was trumpet. Trumpet, um, but he played all the rhythm instruments as well. So could you describe, uh, you, you talked a little bit about what they brought. Um, maybe you could go a little deeper uh, into that if possible, but also, you know, what were they about musically and also personally, especially, you know, since, um, uh, you know, Adams and Hicks aren't with us anymore? Well, like I said, we grew up together in high school and in, in, in bands. What I'd say about Mark Adams, I'll start with Mark Adams. He loved, he loved to play and he practiced all the time. And one of the blessings for me was I went to see um, Earth, Wind & Fire in Tallahassee about a month ago. And I met Verdeen White. Mark Adams loved Verdeen White. He loved Verdeen. He also loved, um, and this is an interesting one, Grand Funk Railroad, Mel Shatner. He really, he really dug him as well, the bass player for Grand Funk Railroad. But he loved Verdeen. Um, he was into, um, yeah, more than anybody, Verdeen. And I was able to tell Verdine White that the great Mark Adams who had passed, you were his main cat, you were his main influence. Um, and that blessed me and it was like, I know Mark, you know, wherever you are, I know you know that I was able to tell Verdine White because he absolutely loved Verdine and he practiced a lot. His sound, his style was a little of Verdine, a little of Graham. He loved Graham as well, Larry Graham, but his thumping was ridiculous. But Mark Adams' finger uh, attack on the bass was just amazing. And a lot of that is his influence from Verdine. Um, Mark as a, Adams as a person was very fun. Um, he, liked to, he liked to joke and, as, as most of us did but he always practiced, he practiced all the time. And if you listen to his records, he does a lot of moves on the bass, but it doesn't sound, it sounds effortless. It doesn't sound busy either. He plays a lot of moves, but it doesn't sound busy. It just sounds like he's emotionally responding to the music and that he has the facility to play whatever he feels. And so, the, the way that we would lock together on drums and bass, I would set up a, a, a cadence and, and, and he would just sort of dance over it. And, and I knew just to, just my feels had to be just the right ones and not be too busy so he could dance. Um, and again, to me, Mark Adams is one of the bass, best bass players, best bass players of all time uh, in this music. Uh, Mark Hicks, he loves Sly he loved Sly from a rhythm perspective. Freddie, he dug Freddie Stone. But from a lead perspective, he loved Jimi Hendrix. He loved Hendrix. And, and what I dug about Drax's uh, sound, it was overdrive and, and it has sustain, but it didn't sound really affected. It didn't sound like, oh, okay, somebody just kicked on the overdrive and now it's got this distortion that's way overdone. He had that strong natural distortion 
with just a little on it that so you heard the lines you heard the lines they weren't so affected and the sustain was there in a way that carlos santana he has that sustain you, you hear distortion but it isn't taking over the sound that's what i dug about drac his distortion never took over the sound at all okay he just turned on the distortion pedal um yes and another he loved he loved jimmy hendrix drac was a fun guy as well. Um, and uh, Drac loved that rock and roll. So we did that funk rock thing. Uh, and again, that solo that he played on slide was 16 years old. It's ridiculous. It's iconic. Um, but not just from the lines, the tone. He had great tone in a way that a lot of some of the great blues players, you know. Um, Albert Collins, cats like that out of Texas, that great tone. Drac had the great tone and um, it was very unique. It, you know, he dug P-Funk as well. Um, so he married that rock and roll and that funk and, and I think he did it in a very special way. Yeah, incredible combination. The two, the two marks, unbelievable. So, Steve, we've been talking a lot about funk, and you know, I like to ask my guests, you know, what what does funk itself mean to you? Um, you know, how do you describe it to, to people if they ask? And also, why do you think it's sort of been, you know, swept under the rug a little bit over the years? It's hard to say what funk is, but the elements about funk music t is borrowed from many other genres. It's bluesy, it's soulful. James Brown married those two together. It's uh, jazzy. The Ohio players brought that side of it. It's rock slash stone brought that side of it. So, and then there's this eclectic, uh, fun, um, almost experimental thing that the great George Clinton brought to it. Where he fused all the elements that we spoke of, and then he added almost like this comedic, um, artsy, um, lyrical perspective to it, you know, um, as if like, you got a marriage of Sun Ra and 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 someone like um, uh, Thelonious Monk, you know, which he uh, he he wasn't influenced by those guys, but he was able to borrow from free jazz and 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 those elements and put it into the funk to concoct this classical music as well. When you got Bernie Worrell playing more classical type lines. Funk is a combination of so many things with an attitude of down-home blues. It's got a down-home, I don't care, Mississippi, Delta, Piedmont, wherever you want to get it. It's got that down-home, I don't care, I'm going in, I'm feeling it's an emotional music. And then Earth, Wind & Fire brings all this polish to it. Prince brings 
you know, this this super eclectic pop thing to it. Uh, songwriter chops to it in 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 the tradition of a sly. Uh, funk music, it has been overlooked. Seemed like we got sandwiched between soul and hip hop, R and B. Now, people are gonna hold on, hold on, hold on. The contributions of George Clinton are massive. Younger people starting and we go, wait a minute, hold, hold, hold. George Clinton, oh my God, because he was he was getting into rap way before rap was called rap. Um, and James Brown as well. A lot of his vocals were different from his first period, please, 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 to Papa's got a brand new bag, and then we how good God, I mean, you know, how he evolved at the end of the day. I'd say funk is a, an eclectic combination of a lot of genres with a bluesy, I don't care, down home attitude that comes from the South and then launch out, man, like a rocket into space. That's the best way I can come up with it. <laughs> I, I, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes I say, I say uh, you, know, I, you know, funk. You know, funk. People say you know funk when you hear it. Maybe it's better to say you know funk when you feel it. Absolutely, it is, man. I mean, it's like I said, like old school blues before somebody said, "Well, let's process this so that we can sell it over here." I'm talking when people was on the porch, just getting it, and you know, early blues cats, you know, cats like people I love, like Hound Dog Taylor. Uh, then we go back to the Delta, you know, um, when people play from the bottom of their heart because they just didn't have, it, that's what was in them. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about hype. It was just, ugh. Yeah. To me, the best funk has got that, ugh, in it. Mm -hmm. So, Steve, this show is called Truth and Rhythm, and so I also like to ask, you know, what, how do you find truth in the rhythm of your music? What, what is the truth for you in music? Whether I believe it. Do I believe what you, do I believe what you're giving me is real? You can hear it. You can hear it was like, oh man. Oh, sheesh. They're playing from their heart. For me, it's gotta be from the heart. I love so many things. Styles, oh my goodness. For me, it's like, do I believe it? Ah, he meant that. Ah, I feel that. He meant it. I feel it. It means something to me. And in my music, it has to be that way. Um, for me, until I till God takes me home. What I do, I wanna I wanna present it in a way that I mean it to myself. If I'm up there singing, I'm like, man, get out of here with that foolishness. I ain't feeling where I'm coming from. I haven't tapped in just yet. But when you tap in and you go, oh, I'm, it's moving me, then we can get it. Now I'm ready. When I'm being moved by what I'm doing, I don't mean hype and ego and all that. I'm talking about deep down in my spirit and my soul. If what I'm doing is I'm getting that oh, feeling from it, then I'm ready to go. I'm ready to hit the mic. I'm ready to hit the drums. I'm ready to the songs to be developed, you know, from the initial ideas. 
for me, that is the key from for listening to myself and listening to others. So taking just a little step back again, you know, back during that golden period of slave, you know, how much creative freedom did the band have in terms of, you know, whether there any label pressures to produce hits or to have a certain kind of sound or to, you know, which single to release and that sort of thing. How did the business side, besides the financial aspect of it, play into the output of, of Slave? Well, we had a lot of room, but as the Just a Touch of Love, watching you that era, 80, 81, Hope became more mainstream in that people were starting to make music that had hit record formulas that were still funky. You know, Rufus came down the pipe. Um, um, and of course, you know, the, the mighty heat wave came down the pipe doing crazy hot records. It was funky, but from a different point of view, uh, the Wilder brothers from Dayton and then, then the great Rod Temperton from England, he added another kind of flavor that might not have been as stonkalicious as some of the other uh, Dayton acts, but it still had that in it. And also it had that unique songwriting of that um, and tone that comes out of Dayton with the marriage with uh, England. Uh, so, um, can you ask your question one more time? <laughs> it was how much creative freedom did the band have and, you know, in, in what they produced and what singles were chosen and, okay. And the record labels relationship with the band. Yeah, that's okay. Where I was coming from is that you had all these other units that were now making big hit records. What happened with us was there was like, oh, okay, we need, more hit record formulas, perhaps maybe more than just one sounding hit record on the album and some down the pipe stuff. So we said, oh, okay. So we responded to that with Just a Touch of Love, Watching You, Sizzling Hot, and on and on into, you know, Snapshot from the um, album, Showtime, Wait For Me. But we still had that grimy, crazy funk that would still lend itself to the uh, influence of George Clinton with Cosmic Slop and all the stuff that we were still into that raw dirt sheet type funk as well on that uh, album Stone Jam, the song Stone Jam would reflect that. But then we also had our hit records too, but Slave always had hit records starting with Slides. So it wasn't that big a deal, but there could have been a little bit more freedom where we could have got more out there, let's say, in some of the stuff. But hey, man, all in all, I think for what we were doing, we were able to represent where our heads was from one year to the next. You mentioned uh, Showtime, which was your last record with the band, and it was you know, a very successful record. I think it was uh, notable for a lot of reasons. Not only was it your last record with them uh, and a hit, but I thought that also the sound changed quite a bit on that record. It sounded like the arrangements were a little more intricate and a little more, you know, elaborate instrumentation going on in places. And, you know, it was, 
real solid on the on the funk and also on the ballads. So could you talk about what went into making that record and then also why it ended up being your last one? Well, the great Stevie Washington, Kurt Jones and Starlina Young, and Tom Lockett, they left after finishing the Stone Jam album. They didn't tour with us. Formed the group Aura. And Stevie Washington was the lead, you know, man, he was the leader. So we had to come up with another leader and that ended up being Mark Adams. Also took two of the vocalists that were part of the group of the concoction with him, which was Starlina Young and Kurt Jones. So we were like, oh, okay. Um, so we honed in and we added more elements. We felt a more elegant sort of thing happening. We're still, um, still raw and dirty, uh, but we added another little element to it. And myself and Danny Webster held most of the weight vocally and writing wise, uh, along with uh, Floyd Miller as well. But we added strings and things and the, the, the arrangements were starting to open up and broaden. That was just part of our growth anyway. And what would have probably happened in the same way, sort of, if Stevie Washington, Kurt and Starr would have stayed, we would have continued to develop arrangement wise, production wise. So part of that was just a growth thing. And part of it was how we were going to respond to the fact that three principal members of the group, one being the leader, uh, had left the band. And then next for you came Hall of Fame, uh, which to me, a uh, phenomenal record. I think it's one of my favorites of the 1980s. Uh, you know, when um, Way Out came on the radio, I was like, man, that is Way Out. That sounds like nothing else on the radio, but it's great. And also Weak at the Knees and um, uh, Nobody Can Be You But You. Great ballads, phenomenal records. So how did that come together, Steve? Well, you know, as I developed, you know, from a drummer to being one of the primary songwriters to lead vocals in Flav, I continued to develop and grow um, in from a production standpoint, um, an arranger. And then I, you know, I had my own ideas. Let's, I want to say one thing. I never sought to leave Slave. I never, that was never in the cards. Stevie Washington and those guys had left and, and formed Aura. Um, and, you know, reasoning again, management, money, so on and so forth. It, it was getting worse and worse. Um, and so I ended up leaving the band. Um, and Steve Arrington's Hall of Fame won was a place in which I was able to open up a, 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 a more broad array of what I was hearing and what I was uh, feeling on that record. And it didn't have to sit inside the slave formula. Um, you could hear the influences that I'd been enslaved, but you could also hear things like Betty By, for instance. Mm -hmm. That sort of song we would never have done enslaved, just the chords, just the way I came up with the guitar. I, I wrote that song from the guitar, those chords. You wouldn't hear that enslaved, that style, the way Betty By uh, develops. Um, and things like uh, Way Out, you know, where I was able to 
use more of my vocals to set up how all of the music was going. Like for instance, on the intro, you hear me doing the thing right after the chords rise and the drum starts and then I get into this like intro vocal music thing. And really what I'm doing now, I'm actually playing the meat of the song vocally and then I distribute that to the band. And so then when the band comes in, they're actually playing the, the uh, vocal things that I had initiated in the intro. So I was able to experiment and do things like that. Um, so that first album was just me coming out and just saying, you know, as a leader, I'm going to open up more of the palette of what I do um, and not try to mimic and be slave, which, you know, some of the record people were like, yo, man, just do another watching you and we, we in the house. And I'm like, that's already happened, dude. If you want to hear watching you, go get the record. I'm on some way out, you know, I'm on something different. Um, and, and I think it, it really has helped establish me through the years that I've been willing to take chances, which to me weren't chances at all. It was just me evolving into following my heart, believing it. Like I said, if, if I can believe what I'm doing, that's what I'm going to do. If I'm feeling it from the heart, that's the way I'm going to bring it. So, yeah, you know, when we did uh, Way Out and I heard, I'm like, yeah, that's where I'm coming from. It doesn't sound like watching you. It doesn't sound like just a touch of love. But, yeah, the honor to where I came from, you can hear it in the record as well. Must have been really gratifying when you did go out on your own and you were met with such success like that. Yeah, man, it was it was great. Um, and, you know, my homies were, were happy for me, too, you know, because we lived in this still this small town in Dayton. So I'd see the homies and, you know, they were doing their thing, working on their new record. I was working on mine and we were happy for each other. They came out with Visions of the Light and I enjoyed that record. Um, and they dug what I was doing. Um, and, you know, um, people thought, yo, man, you, you extended the formula. You, you took things in another direction. You opened it up. And, you know, so I was very uh, excited that people could hear that I was expanding and not trying to um, just be slave point two or something, you know what I mean? 2.0, whatever. Well, that's to your great credit. Um, and it's good to hear too that, you know, you guys were all on, um, you know, good terms because from the outside had no idea, you know, are these guys feuding? What's going on? No, 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 man. Again, we didn't have some kind of breakup that happened. Man, you did this. You on drugs. You took somebody's woman. We didn't have, this wasn't a rock and roll thing. It wasn't a rock and roll breakup. These were things that's like, yo, man, we're walking around here like our cash is dusty, bro. I mean, you know, stuff is not equaling and, and, and coming together. It still hurt, don't get me wrong. And we you know, it, it hurt me to leave the group, but then it hurt me when Stevie and Curtin Starr left as well. It hurt me when Carter Bradley left, the original, uh, you know, keyboards. It's one of those things when you're not being compensated for your work, it's hard to understand the worth of your work. Um, just as simple as that. And so with that being the backdrop of it all, there wasn't a bunch of animosity because somebody did this to somebody else. You know what I mean? So we were in each other's corner. Excellent. 